This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 31st of July 2021 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Today, Andrew Tuck goes sightseeing. I pootled over on my bicycle to check out what, in just one day of being open, had been ridiculed as the worst tourist attraction in London. We'll hear what he found at Marble Arch. We'll check in with our man in the Balkans and then... We learned that recently outgone President Donald Trump attracts the second biggest net unfavourable opinion, outdone only by Richard Nixon, which frankly seems a little rough on Tricky Dick, who resigned before he could even be impeached once. Andrew Muller reflects on the week that was. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24. Turkish authorities say that wildfires, which broke out on July the 28th in 71 different areas in 21 provinces, are slowly being brought under control. The fires began in four different locations at the same time, causing suspicion of arson. Homes have been burned down and people have been forced to flee villages and beach resorts. At least four people have been killed and 50 more hospitalised. 4,000 personnel continue to battle the flames. The Israeli foreign minister has said Iranian terrorism is behind an attack on an oil tanker in which two crew members, a British national and a Romanian citizen, were killed. The MV Mercer Street, operated by the London-based company Zodiac Maritime, was off Oman's coast in the Arabian Sea when the incident occurred on Thursday. And the US Department of Justice has ordered the Internal Revenue Service to hand Donald Trump's tax returns to a House committee. This comes after DOJ memos were released revealing that as part of his campaign to overturn his election defeat by Joe Biden, Trump pressurised top officials to falsely label the 2020 election as corrupt and then leave the rest to him. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Now, joining me on the show today is the Russia expert and regular Monocle 24 contributor, Stephen Diel. Good morning to you, Stephen. Good morning, Georgina. Can I just say what a very fetching hat that is? How would you describe it to our listeners? Um, I prefer the term large-brimmed hat. I suppose it could pass as a trilby, but I like wearing hats. I nearly always wear hats, and I wear hats with large brims. I have one, in fact, with a very, very large brim that I bought in the Czech Republic. Oh, that sounds fascinating. You know, I used to, um, when I was on radio and television in Zimbabwe, which is really quite a small country in terms of population size, so people know you, and if you're on television, they want to know you. And so everywhere I went, people would come up and kind of, Georgina, how lovely to see you again, and try and kiss me. And I found the way to do it, to stop people kissing me, was to always wear a big hat. A hat with a large brim. Yeah, and yes. it really works. Actually, <laughs> but, maybe I'll, um, I'll sort of doff it, and then I might get kissed more often. <laughs> That's not the point. 
point. Uh, let's talk about, well, people kissing up to the Tories. Uh, and uh, this is the big, big story on, on the front of FT Weekend. It's also continued in their uh, magazine, uh, Money, 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 it says, with a picture, a terrible picture of Boris Johnson on the front. And it's all about this elite network of Tory donors. What can you tell us about this? Well, according to the FT, and if something appears in the FT, the Financial Times, it tends to be true. Um, it is, uh, I would say, the best British newspaper there is now. Um, it's very reliable. It's not just about money matters, but this one <laughs> clearly is. It's about this secret group, which apparently is called the Advisory Board, uh, which is made up of people who've made large donations to the Conservative Party, the party of government. Um, and apparently... Um, they say that on the 28th of June, which was a Monday, it was the, just after there had been a scandal over the uh, health secretary. Um, I was going to say, I've always forgotten his name, but unfortunately I can remember it's Matt Hancock. Um, <laughs> but uh, Matt Hancock, who uh, on the Friday had been, uh, pictures were revealed of him um, kissing his uh, one of his... Um, co-workers who uh, he was having an affair with her and Johnson said initially oh well, that's fine there's nothing nothing wrong let's pass on and and so much pressure was put on by his own MPs that he had to sack him the following day so when you think he might have been thinking about that no no on the Monday he was whisked off to this secret meeting of the advisory board um, where these donors who then because they give so much money to the Conservative Party they they claim they have no influence over policy but they have no hesitation according to the FT in having a real go at Boris Johnson and telling him that he's wasting money and he's, he should be spending it on, on this, that and the other, particularly on things like property. Uh, there are some huge property magnates. You, you have the magazine there. I do, um, and there's some, there's some really interesting names here. And, and, uh, and the figures, the, the amount of money that they've been giving. There's at least eight who have given at least a quarter of a million pounds yeah. uh, in 20, 2020 or 2021. Exactly, and, and uh, the, 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 as you say, a quarter of a million pounds. Uh, those who've given at least that sum in 2020 and 2021 include Lubov Chanukin, who is the wife of the former Russian minister Vladimir Chanukin, uh, hedge fund manager Alan Howard, John Gore, a theatre producer, and Rosemary Saeed, who's wife of Wafik Saeed, the Syrian-born businessman known for his role in the UK-Saudi El Yamama arms sale. So there are some very interesting names there, people who clearly now have a lot of influence in British politics simply by dint of how much money they're giving to the party. Let's look a little bit at who runs this, though. This is the uh, this is Ben Elliott, uh, who is the um, uh, who is the um, founder of Quintessentially, um, um, and a concierge service for the rich and possibly famous and possibly less famous, but people who just want to be filthy rich. But he's also um, the Tory co-chair, Tory party co-chair. And he was then made Tory uh, co-chair of the Tory party. Yes, um, uh, interesting character. Um, clearly likes mixing with uh, with the wealthy. Um, uh, uh, the, the thing also about the list you just read out of names, of course, the one that leaps out at me is the Russian one. Mm. Um, uh, we know that there is uh, there are Russian connections, shall we say, with uh, with this present government. Um, Lord Lebedev um, made a member of the House of Lords. His father was um, a long-serving KGB agent. Um, there, there is more behind the scenes that we will never find out, and the FT is doing very well to to do a bit of digging, but. Um, this this is it is not just 
Oh, isn't it outrageous? This is actually is very worrying. Um, in fact, the, the number of people you mentioned, you know, who who uh, are not originally British subjects, may have been given passports in recent years, but um, foreign influence on the way this government spends its money uh, is, is clearly happening. Um, and also, of course, this comes in the wake of um, scandals which have been picked up by other parts of the media in recent months over um, what, the way the, money, the government has spent its money on supposedly COVID plans over the last year. And it seems to be if you're not a friend of the Conservative Party, you don't have a chance. If you are a friend of the Conservative Party, then never mind the tender, you're going to get the money. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's... It's really interesting, all these figures. The, the FT has really gone to town on this in, in the Indeed, magazine. Yeah. Uh, huge detail on figures. Lots of proper, pr- property companies in, in, uh, giving money to, to the Tories too. Yes. I mean, that, that, uh, you know, at a time when there's ongoing debate about uh, green belt of places where you shouldn't, you know, round, normally round our cities where you shouldn't be building. Um, yes, there's a housing crisis. Yes, we need more housing. Um, but if you're, if you're being given large sums of money by property companies, then the, uh, the, the chances that you're going to listen sympathetically to their um, appeals to be able to build on whatever piece of land they want, uh, are, are high, I would say. Mm. Uh, and just one other sort of aspect of this, the FT is kind of pointing out uh, all of the various social connections between these people, between Elliot, between Johnson, between uh, Mrs Johnson, as she now is, uh, and uh, that, that whole world, Zach Goldsmith, of course, all of these people connected, woven together with this, this money trail. Yes, I mean, and this says so much also about, about modern Britain and anyone who thought that modern Britain had become more egalitarian um, just needs to read this to realise that there is still this small group at the top who basically are running things. Um, and it is, for them, it's not only who you know but how much money you have. Uh, mm. And if, you, you know, if you're wealthy and you had the right connections, you know the right people, then you are well in with this government. And it does seem that there are lovely perks for those who give money. So uh, one... One um, one person, Nadia, I can't quite see her surname, uh, a Mercy, uh, whose whose husband is a, is a big donor. He's made millions in telecom deals around the world. Uh, they were apparently whisked off to have uh, lunch with Prince Charles, uh, which was arranged by Ben Elliott, which just shows you that with enough money, you can have a great day out. <laughs> Not the case for Andrew Tuck, however, who apparently had a very bad day out at London's worst tourist attraction. Let's have a listen. On Wednesday morning, I pootled over on my bicycle to check out what, in just one day of being open, had been ridiculed as the worst tourist attraction in London. It's a pop-up hillock called the Marble Arch Mound that sits like an abandoned slag heap at the western end of Oxford Street. It's essentially a 25-metre-high scaffolding tower covered in a smear of often sunburnt sedum and the occasional lonely tree, although the pigeons seem grateful of the roost. At ground level, there's a living, aka drooping wall, packed with out-of-place plants, not hardy British natives, but instead tropical-looking, big-leaved numbers. You could tell that people had been panicking at the poor reception the mound had received as, behind the protective metal fencing, numerous people with clipboards were having earnest conversations and doing lots of serious pointing. I wanted to go up the mound, but ticket sales were apparently suspended. And by the following day, the attraction had suddenly been closed down. 
both the local council and architects claiming it had been unwisely revealed before it was really ready. Nothing to see here, move on please, was the attitude. Don't write it off yet, London has a habit of opening things only to close them down again, well, for a few days or months. The Millennium Bridge by Tate Modern is still known as the Wobbly Bridge by many Londoners in honour of the sick-inducing swaying movement that struck it on opening day as hordes walked across the pedestrian link. It closed after two days and it took engineers some 19 months to fix the issue, but it is now much loved. Trouble is, the mound is only supposed to be here until January and cannot shutter like that. And while the architects have asked the public to be patient and let nature take over, this seems unlikely. Something called autumn isn't far away and will quickly strip the silver birches of their leaves. We have also been encouraged by its creators to see the mound as a folly in the style of grottos and whimsical towers that were once all the rage in aristocratic gardening circles. Oh, and also to savour it as an erection with intent, one designed to focus our minds on the need for more nature in our cities. This last bit is hard to take seriously when Marble Arch sits on the edge of glorious mature Hyde Park. And to be blunt, at the moment, you're more likely to be reminded not of nature's potential, but more of an episode of Chernobyl. So what went wrong? First, the preemptive opening smacks of an attitude so prevalent in our digital age. Just get it open and then we can fix the mistakes as we go. But this is not a website or an e-com platform and hell hath no fury like a social media commentator who has forked out good money. Remember, they really don't like forking out money at all to trundle up a shabby hillock. Secondly, its promise is a weak one. Climb a hill and see the city, when London has plenty of nature festooned places that offer epic and ancient panoramic views for free. Come and join me for a walk up Parliament Hill, or perhaps Primrose Hill. And then there's the emotion bit. While it's offered as a lesson in sustainability, the main intent of the council, who commissioned it, is commercial. To lure shoppers back to London's once busy retail strip, Oxford Street. That's not to say pop-ups can't work. A short amble away is the summer pavilion that's built by the Serpentine Gallery each year. Come to think of it, why didn't they just place this at Marble Arch? The unfortunate thing is that the mound is the work of a wonderful architectural practice, MVRD out of the Netherlands. We regularly cover their work in Monocle and co-founder Vinnie Mass is an inspirational speaker who has joined us on stage at Monocle events. But sometimes things just don't work out even when you have a talented crew. And this maybe is one of those times. But MVRDV does have to take some responsibility for another misstep that explains the widespread anger at the mound's two million pound bill. The enticing digitally concocted images that they allowed to be circulated in recent months show not a drought hits the hell, but rather a vast and shaggy forest. Now, architects' digital renders rarely match the final outcome, but Whoever was in charge of adding the trees to these ones got way too carried away. You'd have to leave the mound in situ for a century for it to match the Digiville previews. And no doubt the council lapped this all up at presentation stage, thinking only of the fulsome Instagram posts coming its way. Making green spaces, providing spots where we can get new views of our cities is important, but it turns out it's perhaps even more complicated than skilled practitioners even think. 
Just look at the drubbing Thomas Heatherwick's viewing tower, the vessel received in New York, some comparing it to a giant kebab meat spit. So, even if the mound fails, we should not turn our backs on such enterprises in the future. Simply question the intent more at the outset, ask more about the time needed to deliver something great, and then unpack the architect's renders with renewed vigor. Our cities really deserve better than some of the nonsense that's being built in the name of COVID recovery. And it's our job to make sure that we get what we need. Many thanks there to Andrew Tuck. Our job to get what we need, Stephen. But of course, there is so much already out there built. London has such a hugely rich heritage of old buildings. Do we really need new tourist attractions? Well, this, this one really does seem to be uh, the most absurd. You know, sticking a sticking a mound as, as as Andrew pointed out in the report. There, it's right on the edge of Hyde Park, one of the greatest green spaces in the middle of one of the cities, uh, the, big, the world's biggest cities. Um, and interestingly, uh, in today's or this weekend's New York Times um, there's a, a piece about it says Church Tower, a survivor of old London and um, a, uh, a three bedroom home is being has been built in a converted 17th century church tower near Fleet Street, of course the, the home of, of, uh, of, of British newspapers for many years um, uh, and you, know, you see this, this picture, it's got a, a picture of this, what is a, a ruin but of course the walls, some of the walls still standing in this wonderful tower and you know, we don't need these nonsensical gimmicks like a mound um, when we have not only great pieces of history in London, uh, but also more modern architecture. Um, the Shard, for example, now some people love it, some people hate it, uh, but it is a very striking um, building which has actually got usefulness as well. So just sticking up, <laughs> sticking up a mound in the middle of London, um, it, it just seems to be totally absurd. It's extraordinary, isn't it? And I mean, one, one example, I suppose, of, of uh, an area that's absolutely booming with new build uh, and, and quite topical at the moment, of course, because it's also going on now in Tokyo, is is the Olympic Park in Stratford here in London. And that whole area really has been regenerated because of that. Exactly. That's, that's the word, regeneration. And Marble Arch doesn't need any kind of regeneration. Whereas when the Olympic Park was built uh, in, in Stratford in East London, um, they really did take the ball by the horns and say, look, this is a rundown area. We need to, to improve it. And so they built this magnificent park and, it, and it's living on. It has got a legacy. Um, um, the stadium is now used by West Ham United for their home games in the Premier League. Um, the park itself, there's a wonderful, wonderful swimming, the swimming pool, which is open to the public now. Um, they're what they call the Copper Box, where they have all sorts of sporting events. And the accommodation that was built for the athletes is now is, is, is accommodation, the flats for, for, for the local people. So that is something where the Olympics really have shown a legacy and they've shown where you can do something useful uh, as, well as, as well as new and modern. Absolutely. Well, let's, let's talk about the Olympics because obviously that is something that's absolutely dominating the headlines at the moment. But I'd like to just talk about a, a related uh, sporting row that's, that's going on. This is about the, the Norwegian handball women's handball team. Yeah, this I, as a man, find this absolutely outrageous that they're being fined by the European body that runs handball um, because they chose to wear shorts 
playing their game instead of bikini bottoms. Uh, this, this to me, is just the most outrageous sexism. I mean, uh, if, uh, you know, what, what, what is it supposed to be? It's, it's a sport. It's not supposed to be goggling female bodies. And female bodies may be very beautiful. Indeed, many of them are. But to tell them that they have to wear bikini bottoms and then fine them for wearing shorts, it, it just, it's absurd. Let me, let me take a male example. Um, as a great football fan, um, in recent years, the shorts that male players wear have tended to get longer, um, sometimes almost down to the knees. It sort of harks back to the old days almost. I remember 50 or so years ago, <laughs> there was a, a Southampton player called um, McGrath who, who was renowned for wearing the tightest shorts possible, and it, was, it became a standing joke. Um, uh, and, you know, but no one said, oh, isn't it wonderful? And no, and no one's complained about the shorts getting longer now. Um, this really does seem to be... Uh, you know, who are these? There must be... I can only imagine they're men who are... Um, whether they're frustrated and lusting after women or so, I don't know. But but to find them for wearing shorts, and, and the pictures show, you know, they look, it's normal sporting gear. Um, you've had other developments in recent years. Um, swimmers, swimmers often wear full costumes now because they say it, it's like shark skin helps them go faster. Um, uh, it's it's not supposed to be about the way they look. I mean, I, I to be honest, I have no interest in watching, um, uh, what's it called, beach volleyball. Um, because again, you know, uh, it's it's it seems to almost like a joke sport, and why it's in the Olympics, I don't know. Because um, you know, it's, it's volleyball is a great sport, but is you know, what are we there for? Are we there to watch these fantastic athletes in action, or are we there just to ogle them? And I just couldn't believe when I heard that that, mm. that, that they were being fined for wearing shorts. And this also comes hot on the heels of this whole mental health crisis, <clears throat> and we've got to thank uh, uh, Simone Biles here for for really highlighting this and the amount of vitriol that she has attracted for saying that she felt that she could no longer go on with people basically saying pull your socks up and just do it clearly she knows her body she knows her mind too and knows that it would just not have been possible to do it without endangering herself absolutely and and the stress that all the athletes have been under because you know it's not just a question of turning up at the olympics and and performing um you know, athletes, they, the Olympics are a, are a, a post that they see, that they train towards. And, of course, they'd all trained towards it for last year, and it didn't happen. So they've had to rearrange their training schedules. And this does have... You know, it, it is about the mind as well as the body when it comes mm. to uh, elite sport, when it comes to any sport, to be honest. Even it comes to acting. And, you know, it's all about how, how you feel inside as well. And I, I all credit to her for actually having the guts to say, actually, I, I can't do it. I've got to pull out. Rather than... you know, Because what, what would have happened? If she'd, if she'd performed and performed badly, everyone would have just hammered her for that. So um, all credit to her for actually speaking out. But, I mean, this, this, this really... The, the, the hand ball row, you know, playing in your knickers row and uh, and Simone Biles and various other examples we've seen, all it really comes from the same root. It's this horrible, horrible sexism and misogyny. Now, another person who's really getting it in the neck for this uh, is Alex Scott. And in fact, here she is talking about Simone Biles. The four-time Olympic champion has transcended her sport, raised awareness on a range of very important issues, and she's done it again. Finding one's voice just, is just as difficult as any skill that can be mastered. Simone has ensured that the Tokyo Olympics will also be defined by things other than sport, a conversation that needs to be continued. Mental health is important and it does matter. 
Well, that's the sports commentator, Alex Scott, talking about uh, Simone Biles. But she herself, Scott, has come under criticism. I'm going to quote Lord Digby Jones now here. He said, enough, I can't stand it anymore. Alex Scott spoils a good presentational job on the BBC Olympics team with her very noticeable inability to pronounce her G's at the end of a word. Competitors are not taking part, Alex, in the fencing, rowing, boxing, kayaking, weightlifting and swimming. If you need a more blatant example of horrible sexism, elitism, look no further. Indeed. Uh, and I'm afraid um, uh, Digby uh, is uh, is known for his pomposity, to be honest. Um, I, I crossed swords with him over a sporting story some years ago um, when I was introduced to him at a reception. And he said, oh, before I meet him, um, I'm just telling these people why I hate Arsenal Football Club. Now, I'm a lifelong Arsenal fan, so I immediately pricked up my ears. And he started to tell the story of the 1971 FA Cup semi-final, he said, at Villa Park, where Arsenal scored a last-minute penalty, they were lucky. And I said, excuse me, Lord Jones, that game was at Hillsborough, Sheffield, not Villa Park. No, 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 I know what I'm saying, I know what I'm saying. Um, To cut a long story short, I had a meeting with him, a business meeting, a couple of weeks later, and I took along, one of my um, fads is I collect football programmes, and I took along the programme of that match, which was indeed played at Hillsborough. Um, And he did have the good grace to apologise, but he was so full of his own importance in front of all these other people that he just dismissed me out of hand. No, 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 you're wrong. And in fact, I was perfectly right. It's just mm. extraordinary. I mean, it just, you know, here he is, a white, middle-class, privately educated, privileged man, criticising a black working-class girl who's become successful through her talent, her drive and determination. It's a great sportswoman. And what's more, um, who are the majority of people who are watching the, the Olympics, who, who, who watch sport? They're not actually what um, uh, the former Man United footballer uh, Roy Keane described, the prawn sandwich brigade. They're not the people who, who sort of sit up and, you know, pay in the best seats and, and go out for for drinks at half time with um, with the directors you know they're, they're the ordinary people and Alex Scott talks like a lot of ordinary people mm. and you know she, but what she conveys in the in what, what, what everything she does in sport and what she talks about now she was a great sportswoman and, and the way she conveys the enthusiasm she conveys what it's all about uh, and it's much more important to to get that across than to be frightfully correct and and talk and get all your G's in the right place very important for you Georgina Godwin yes <laughs> uh, uh, that, that that you know he he's just missing the point he's yeah. just being so pompous but but also, I mean, one's accent is, is one's identity. Yeah, you know, absolutely. It's, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's who you are. And, and how dare anybody suggest somebody one's accent is better than another. I love the fact that I have flattened vowels and that you can hear I'm from Southern Africa. <laughs> Possibly more so when I'm drunk, but, you know... <laughs> I think it's great. Anyway, here's a man who has extremely flattened vowels. <laughs> I am, of course, talking about our own Andrew Muller. <laughs> We learned this week who was actually responsible for the storming last January 6th of the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. The untrained onlooker may have believed that this was a pretty open and shut sort of affair, that when a rabble of angry yahoos listens to a speech by a particular person, waves flags bearing the name of that particular person, and chants the name of that particular person while conducting their mayhem, then maybe that particular person might have a case to answer. Wrong. 
We learned as US Congress began hearing harrowing testimony from those who sought to defend the seat of American democracy that the person who was really to blame was, in fact, one of the legislators whose office was wrecked during the stramash in question and who appeared to be a target of the mob. The American people deserve to know the truth that Nancy Pelosi bears responsibility as Speaker of the House for the tragedy that occurred on January 6th. We learned this from Elise Stefanik, Congresswoman from New York and Chair of the House Republican Conference. And if you can't trust someone who has repeatedly endorsed Donald Trump's demented fantasies of a stolen 2020 presidential election, who can you? Yeah. We also learned, just for the record, after looking it up and everything, that Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the US House of Representatives, does not, in fact, have operational oversight of the Capitol Police. Doubtless Congresswoman Stefanik will issue a correction in due course. That clip is a great deal more evocative if you rewind it and imagine tumbleweed drifting across the middle distance. Anyway. Here in the UK, we learned that Prime Minister Boris Johnson has been having ideas. Yes, freed at last from the intellectual headlock of his former advisor Dominic Cummings, who, we learned, is now spending his days tweeting about Britney Spears, which is even weirder than that time former Iranian president Mahmoud Ahmadinejad started teeing off about American college football, Johnson has been contemplating justice. If you're guilty of antisocial behaviour and you're sentenced to, to, to unpaid work, as many people are, I don't see any reason why you shouldn't be out there in a, one of those fluorescent jacketed chain gangs visibly paying your debt to society. And so well, you're going to be seeing more of that as well. And despite the cynicism of some, <laughs> we look forward to hearing more about what is doubtless a meticulously excogitated new crime policy and certainly not a bunch of mad nonsense spouted on the spur of the moment in order to rile up the Conservative Party's core voter base of insane retired brigadiers. Yeah, we're going to need the tumbleweed clip again. Returning to the subject of the US presidency obliquely foreshadowed earlier, we learned of some intriguing insights into the relative popular esteem in which past occupants of the office are now held. A YouGov survey examined the feelings of the American public vis-à-vis their commanders-in-chief, some of which wasn't surprising. Lincoln, Kennedy and Washington on the podium, respectable showings for Jefferson, Eisenhower and both Roosevelt's, but quite a lot of which was. Mm. I can't wait to see where this goes. Okay. Tell me more. Let's see where this goes. We learned, for example, that recently outgone President Donald Trump attracts the second biggest net unfavourable opinion, outdone only by Richard Nixon, which frankly seems a little rough on Tricky Dick, who resigned before he could even be impeached once. That I welcome this kind of examination, because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. Those were the days, huh? We learned that 2% of Americans claim not to know who Joe Biden even is, which actually seems, in context, like kind of an endorsement of his general approach. 
We learned that double digits of Americans have never heard of William McKinley and James Garfield, known to setters of pub quizzes the world over as the other two assassinated presidents. And most excitingly of all, we learned that obscurity is no deliverance from opprobrium. We learned that fully 14% of Americans are actually able to summon an unfavourable or very unfavourable opinion about Millard Fillmore, which you'd reckon would be like flying into a rage at celery soup or potted ferns. What a Loser. fool. Stupid 13th idiot. president. What Only carried idiot. one state in 1856, Fillmore. and idiot. that was Maryland, which hardly counts. Idiot. What a loser. What kind of a name is Millard? What kind of idiot idea was the compromise of 1850 anyway? Stupid. Couldn't get nominated for a second term by his own party. What a deadbeat. You know what? I really don't like him. Yeah, what do you know? Easier than it looks. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. Thank you very much to Andrew and various assorted cast. Uh, that is our contributing editor, Andrew Muller, and you are listening to Monocle on Saturday. Right now we're off to the Western Balkans to get a roundup of the stories that are making news there. Monocle's correspondent, Guy Delaunay, joins me on the line from Slovenia's capital, Ljubljana. Good morning to you, Guy. Morning, Georgina. Let's talk about Tesla. Indeed, but it's not the usual Tesla. It's nothing to do with Elon Musk. You'll be absolutely thrilled to know. Uh, and it's not even particularly to do with, with Nikola Tesla, the inventor and what he did. It's what he symbolises and, and who's allowed to claim him as, as a national hero. Because uh, an announcement earlier in the week by Croatia that it planned to put Nikola Tesla on its euro coins when it joins the euro, hopefully in 2023, has kicked up a right old stink uh, in the region, particularly with its neighbour, Serbia, who more or less says, hands off, he's ours. That's extraordinary. So who does he belong to? Well, that is a vexed question. He was actually (laughs) born in central Croatia, uh, but Serbia points out that he was an ethnic Serb. His mother and father were both ethnic Serbs, uh, that he identified as an ethnic Serb. And what's more, we've got his ashes right here in Belgrade, along with the Nikola Tesla Museum and the Nikola Tesla Airport, which is where you'll fly in if you're coming into Serbia, most probably. Uh, Croatia points out, however, that, uh, you know, he was born in Croatia. Uh, Meanwhile, Uh, I could point out that he spent most of his life in the United States, uh, but nobody's really talking about that. (laughs) No. All right. Let's talk about Croatia, though, and the fact that Dubrovnik is finally reunited with the rest of the country. I reckon a lot of people probably wouldn't know this, especially if they fly into Dubrovnik. They wouldn't realise that Dubrovnik is physically cut off from the rest of Croatia, a chunk of, uh, of, of Adriatic Croatia, which has a bit of Bosnia because all of these settlements we've had over the years, not just the one in 1995 with the Dayton Peace Agreement, but before that, even Habsburg time and beyond, um, it meant that that there's a little bit of Bosnia on the coast there called Nurm. And until now, if you were driving from any other part of Croatia, say Zagreb or Split, um, you would actually have to go into Bosnia a drive about a kilometre or so, and then out of Bosnia again. And if Bosnia was playing nice, this wasn't a particularly big problem. Uh, but if they weren't, you could spend, find yourself stuck for hours in border crossings just with a little tootle down the uh, Adriatic coast. Uh, so Croatia 
Croatia's built this bridge, the Pelješac Bridge. Um, it is now completed. It's not formally open, but that didn't stop them from having an opening ceremony. Um, Guy, you have not just one, but two bridge stories for us. That is true. We also have the Bridge of Brotherly Love in uh, between Serbia and Bosnia. Uh, this is the, the, the Bratoljub Bridge, which means brotherly love, between Bratunat and Ljubovia. Get it? See what they did there? <laughs> this is over the River Drina. It was completed four years ago, but it has never actually opened because uh, Serbia and Bosnia hadn't agreed on border crossings on the bridge. And uh, they, they finally signed an agreement this week. So we might actually see that bridge opening as well. Mm-hmm. Now, you're in Ljubljana, which is celebrating a wonderful award. Indeed. Uh, it's got this, well, <laughs> as a Liverpudlian, I have to say, I have a mixed feelings about UNESCO World Heritage Awards these days. But uh, uh, li- many buildings in, in Ljubljana now have been graced with uh, a World Heritage Awards, specifically the buildings designed by uh, the, the great architect Jorge Plechnik. So if you've ever been to, to Ljubljana and crossed the Triple Bridge, for example, that is now a World Heritage Site. Uh, so uh, th- this is a great thing for, for Slovenia. They are indeed celebrating that uh, one of their national icons is now a world icon. Guy, thank you very much indeed. That's Guy Delaunay speaking to us from Ljubljana. And of course, he mentioned Liverpool, uh, Stephen. Uh, and that's because Liverpool has just lost its world heritage uh, status. Yes, and I'm, I'm amazed, actually, he was very restrained because one of the, well, the reason it's lost its world heritage status is because the famous old seafront, uh, sea um, I mean, Liverpool has always been a very important port uh, for, for Great Britain. Um, and the seafront has cha- now changed so much that... UNESCO has said, well, it's, it's changed beyond recognition, and so it's no longer World Heritage Site. And one of the reasons it's changing, and that's why I'm surprised Guy didn't make the most of it, is because Everton Football Club, which some people might say is the other team in Liverpool, um, are going to build their new stadium there. And I say the other because I know that Guy is a rabid Liverpool fan. So I thought, you know, he was very restrained. He could have sort of blamed Everton for everything and said, well, that's why they've lost the World Heritage Site. But it's not entirely because of Everton, but that's part of it. <laughs> Uh, but uh, there have been other games, not just Ljubljana, but uh, Wales has had... Uh... Oh, yes. Oh, the Welsh slate mines. Don't you know? They've been made a World Heritage Site this week. I'm, I think I might have to stop you there. The producer of this programme is Welsh. And in fact, he's gone off to Wales today. Shout out to, to Rhys James. Rhys, I do apologise. I am trying to rein in the guest and stop him doing a bad Welsh accent. Well, I didn't think it was that bad, but uh, and I was doing it out of honour for Wales. It's Snowdonia, in fact, North Wales. Um, Rhys, I happen to know, is from South Wales. And they, you know, rarely does South Wales talk to North Wales. One of these strange little um, spats between uh, between parts of the same country. Um, but North Wales, Snowdonia is is an amazing uh, site. It's, I, I'm a great lover of, of my native Scotland and particularly the Highlands. Well, Snowdonia is like a kind of mini Highlands. And if you can't get all the way up to the to the Highlands of Scotland, go and visit Snowdonia. It's got these wonderful mountains, um, Mount Snowdon, of course, the most famous, the highest, um, and and lakes. Um, but it's all based on slate and uh, the, the the slate from there the Welsh claim that is, is the best slate in the world in fact we bought some mats last year we have table mats made of, of slate from that area and it is very good um, and these there are six slate mines which are now sadly are not, not really working um, but the, because of that the area has been declared by UNESCO as a World Heritage Site, which I find is very interesting because it's it's not just about 
wonderful architecture or, or, or beauty. Um, these are, this is a rugged landscape. These slate mines, to work down the slate mines, must have been pretty awful. Mm. Um, and it's a recognition of, of man's work, of, of, of what man has done with his natural environment, using it for the good, um, because these slates have been used for all sorts, in all sorts of buildings and so on. Um, so, uh, so well done, Wales. And including the, you know, all sorts of buildings and uh, decoration, including your table. Next time, <laughs> we'll have you back uh, as, our, as our tabletop consultant. <laughs> uh, do you know how to say goodbye in Welsh? I don't know. I can say Kroisoi Gamri, which is welcome to Wales, but I think you're going to say goodbye, aren't you? I think it's Julio Mao. Anyway, in English, that means goodbye. That's all for this edition of Monocle on Saturday. Thanks to our studio engineer, Nora Hull, our supervising producer, Rhys James, and of course to Stephen Diel, who's been with me in the studio today. I'm Georgina Godwin, and Monocle on Saturday returns at the same time next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.